had drank the Kool-Aid at NIDA and, you know, there's all these pictures of Kate Blanchett and Judy Davis on the wall. And, yeah, I, I bought the myth that there was real acting to be done, serious acting. G'day and welcome to The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation, a podcast about living a happier, healthier and more ethical life. Our society puts a lot of emphasis on smarts, but not enough on wisdom. So this podcast seeks out wise people who can share their insights on passion, grit, love and empathy. We'll discuss everything from sport to parenting and hear the stories of some of the world's wisest souls. If you enjoy the podcast, let your friends know so they can share the insights. Now... Let's dive in to today's conversation. Sheridan Harbridge is one of Australia's most talented thespians. A NIDA graduate, she's appeared on the stages of all the major Australian theatre companies. In 2015, she wrote Songs for the Fallen, which won Best Musical at the New York Music Theatre Festival. As a writer, director and actor, she's ranged across outlandish cabaret and serious drama. And it's a real pleasure to have her on the podcast today. Hello. Hello. Gosh, that makes me feel so successful hearing you say it all like that. But here I am in my Ugg boots in the pandemic, wondering what it's all about. <laughs> a little less glamorous than some of those costumes you've worn on stage, right? It's, uh, it's not, the, uh, not the white boots you wore in the ABBA oh, production? No. Oh, those shoes. Oh, that, that was a highlight, my ABBA boots. Yes. Yeah, no, it's, I've got this mandatory... Um, costume now of just a Uniqlo track pants and thermals. It's great. <laughs> I don't know. I actually, I had a job um, not that long ago. I recorded a play for, a radio play for ABC and I hadn't left the house in months and I put on a bra and couldn't believe it. Like, I was like, what? If you haven't been in one for about three months, you could, these are terrible. They're so uncomfortable. I can't believe I've been wearing these every day of my life. Yeah, it was a, it was a shock, a real shock. I had not expected we'd go there immediately. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, so, uh, so let me take you back to uh, pre-bra days of uh, growing up in uh, in Tyres in East Gippsland. Uh, what was it like to grow up in a small town? Jeez, it was. I mean, it's a really beautiful land out there, um, and that Tyres is a tiny town. That's sort of a satellite town to um, Terrelgan, which is where the um, there's the big. Um, open cut coal mine there so it's all sort of industry there but the land Mm. around there is really really beautiful but we lived on this 100 acres of the most useless farm like I couldn't even tell you what we were supposed to be farming but it was a farm Um, and there were seven of us seven kids and I mean in many ways we were used as just slave labor on the farm I think I think they just kept breeding us to do all the farm work but um, (laughs) it was a really beautiful um, place to grow up and we were just sort of grubby filthy kids you couldn't get shoes on any of us much to my mother's distress and it was a yeah pretty idyllic way to live like we didn't have money but I wasn't aware I had a very clever mum I didn't know we were povo feral kids who lived up the hill I thought it was just normal everything seemed really normal and yeah nice pretty privileged I would say yeah do you remember your first introduction to the theatre? Do you remember the first piece of theatre you saw? Um, yeah, we, my mum um, splurged out when I was probably about 10 or something and took us to Beauty and the Beast, the musical, which was um, Hugh Jackman's sort of first big role. Um, and seeing that just blew my mind. That was, I mean, that's a sensational sort of specky, specky show. So <laughs> there was that which I thought, wow, this is sort of like a magic thing thing you can do but a few years later my probably the second piece of theater I saw was um we were taken to a production of Romeo and Juliet and sort of about you know it's a two-hour ride to the city you know we're exhausted it's totally disinterested Shakespeare was just way over our heads and to my horror all I remember doing is sitting up in the balcony and um folding the program into aeroplanes and we were throwing it down onto the actors which just horrifies me because now I know like I will know who those actors were I've never dared look up the production it must have been Belle Shakespeare um we were disgusting and I I'm ashamed 
I'm ashamed of that. But <laughs> that was not so inspiring. But definitely, yeah, Beauty and the Beast was was pretty pretty wowzers. Were your parents fairly uh, fairly artistic? I mean, what you, what got, what got you going down this path? I have no idea because uh, my mama she was you know sort of full time mum and just working on the farm, but she became a social worker. Um, like in her late forties, she entered the workforce much much later. And my dad is a like an earth mover and diesel mechanic. Um, but really, it was being I'm number six in the lineup. Um, which was just what my dad called me. He just called us by number. I was number six. And uh, <laughs> I, I think it a, was a super privileged place to be. <laughs> Not everyone gets to be the sixth child because everyone else sort of had uh, responsibilities, I think, that they felt they need to fulfil. But by the time you get to six kids, like, there's nothing left. There's no no role in the family left to fulfill and I was very free to do whatever I wanted and I had a really great mama who always let us know that we could do whatever we want even though we had sort of no means that no one had really gone to no no one in her generation had gone to university Um, but it was always made very clear to us that we could do whatever we we sort of set out to do so all my artistic leanings um, which is never questioned at all. And I sort of, I started off as a musician. I played xylophone, really useful instrument, um, and guitar. And that was sort of the beginning of my performing world. But I'm ashamed to admit that I only played guitar because I had a huge crush on the guitar teacher. I had no interest in that instrument whatsoever, except for the man who was playing it. My ability to speak French shows itself entirely to uh, the attractiveness of, the French, oh, of my French yes. teacher. These are not bad things. Do not underestimate the power of lust and ambition. Um, yeah, I mean, I played for six years just so I could be close to that poor man. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I mean, it began with music um, and the acting side of it came later. But, yeah, I would say it's the freedom led me to a, a part, uh, an artistic life. Um, I see it as such a, a pleasure and a privilege to to feel that I'm free to do so. Not everyone gets to sort of grow up and feel like they can invest in art. It's so interesting you talk about freedom because I imagine for most people being alone on a stage would be among the most terrifying <laughs> things they yeah. imagine. Uh, whereas for you it sounds like that's that's your free place. Yeah, I mean it's not for the faint-hearted. That's, I mean I say free, I make it sound really beautiful like I'm running you know, through a field of daisies, but behind every artist is someone riddled with self-loathing and it's us, it's only us chasing us around with a chainsaw to make us be better, 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 better. So, yes, there is there is a very dark side to uh, the inner life of an artist. So I'm sure we'll get to that. <laughs> well, I remember once interviewing Henry Zepps and him telling me that uh, unless you passionately want to be an actor every minute of every day, then you should just give up oh, immediately yeah. because there are such pe- people out there and if you're not as passionate as them, then they'll eat totally. you it's a <laughs> It's a 80% a lousy life, especially if you're not working. So, But I've been super lucky. I've managed to make it work I don't know how don't know why but um I've managed to make a living off it but geez it's there's so little work um I think when you turn up to audition for NIDA I think they still do it they give this obligatory speech where they say only one one percent of you will work do you still want to audition and of course no one leaves but that is a fact and it's not having been in the industry for 15 years it's definitely not an exaggeration one percent. Oof, we're insane. We're actually insane <laughs> to pursue it. But I, that Henry Zepps is right. Like, you just have to. There's some of us that have an itch that has to be scratched, and if it's not scratched, we would shrivel up. And I, it, I think it would be just a sad existence. So yeah, got to do it. <laughs> The first year of night is largely about uh, breaking down all of your preconceptions about theatre, isn't it? Uh, how did you find that experience? Oof, it was hard. Yeah, it's it's super hard. I like everyone always. The, there's that thing about sort of all drama schools about how they break you down and build you back up again. And I definitely felt broken down. But it wasn't necessarily the school that did it. It was me. My um, 
ambition was crippling, I would say. You know, my expectations of myself became so oppressive that I really, really squashed myself. And I I reckon by the end of third year, in retrospect, I realised I had a nervous breakdown at the end of third year. Um, And it took a long time to repair that. But they are... They're hard places, and I think I went a bit young. I was only 19. I'd never lived in a city and had come to Sydney just going, what the hell? Like from I went from Tyres to mm. Ballarat, which is another beautiful country town, to Sydney, and it was just such an overwhelming thing. And then to go into this really cutthroat competitive space um, where you sort of – it's not even like you're putting work on canvas to be – uh, judged and criticised. It's literally you. It's your body. It's your face. It's your voice. It's your imagination that is in the firing line. And when you're young, you've got no defences against that. And I think you spend the first... The people who do sort of make it out of drama school and work and start to build a career are the ones who sort of learn to build a defence system against that yet you know then there's the contradiction of you have to remain vulnerable um so it's yeah it's a a very funny life to balance but yeah I think NIDA was a super challenging time and people don't make it out in one piece (laughs) but um yeah I was going to ask whether is that is that how we need to train actors? I mean, I can understand the philosophy of don't perform outside during your first mm. year because you want to give people that that freedom to kind of rebuild who they are as an actor. Uh, but but is it necessary to sort of break people down in almost a quasi military academy kind of kind of way? Is that is that really how we create our our best actors? Jeez, it's actually it's a really interesting argument because. I hear, I've heard that it's quite different at NIDA now and actually not just NIDA, all of the arts institutions because universities have moved from, you know, it was super exclusive. It used to be super exclusive to get into drama schools like that, but now they're so aligned with universities. In many ways, the student has become the customer. And Mm. by that, um, and I'm not criticising this, it's just a really big shift in the ideology I think in that when we were there we were really made to feel like we were so lucky to be there and any minute we could get the boot and they did have a many of the schools have a had a system of um culling you know to just if people weren't a great student or they were holding the rest of the year back they just got the boot now these institutions can't afford to do that they need the numbers um and there's just such a different attitude to um, uh, criticism and the, sh- the students have a much bigger say in how they get to be treated. And I think all these are great things that have really progressed. But I do think in my time there was there was like a do or die flavour. You really, <laughs> which sounds so dramatic, where it felt like if you didn't succeed, you may as well be dead. And, you you know, you're young, you're 19, you do think that dramatically. But it was a rare kind of, um, I don't know, like a this one time in your life where the stakes are that high. So you do find things out as an artist that you kind of don't get to out in the scene because things are sort of more balanced (laughs) as they should be and healthy Mm. but I don't know I don't regret the gauntlet like I made discoveries that I would never have gotten to explore and I went to some terrible depths and found some incredible places of ecstasy that you sort of get from the extremes of those institutions I will I will say, though, I didn't feel like anyone else broke me down. I, I never felt attacked like that. I did Anything I did, I did to myself. But I did witness some super difficult things happen to other people um, that I do question whether that was necessary. And I think it sort of comes from... Um, I think it comes from staff in institutions not having been back out in the biz themselves so they become very institutionalized themselves and things Mm. get very serious but I think if you know and I've 
overseas there's more of a system of staff go in to teach and then they're back out in the industry but Australia being smaller we sort of didn't have that and I think the staff became this sort of untouched community within themselves that led to some kind of um, difficult emotional manipulative practices but you know and this isn't just NIDA this is in every school and it's a similar experiences to all my friends from the other academies so I don't know I think it's a really difficult thing because I I wouldn't take back anything I got from that degree um I just wish I'd been kinder to myself in many ways yeah yeah, it's an interesting question, the extent to which the mm. sort of movement towards safe spaces uh, creates uh, a different sort of sort of actor. Yeah. I'll be, I'm fascinated to see what the graduates in the next five years will be like. Yes, you know? exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe they'll be much healthier people. <laughs> Let's hope so. Yes. Uh, yes. I've heard you say, Sheridan, that you aspired to be a real actor, as you put it, but then you fell into comedy. Uh, how did that transition happen? And, and why was it that you didn't come out thinking of comedy as being uh, just as good as being a dramatic Brechtian actor? Uh, I think... I went. I think I went into NIDA thinking that I that you know I was going to be a writer and I was going to be a comedian. I thought that from the start. But then, I think I drank the Kool Aid at NIDA, and you know, there's all these pictures of Kate Blanchett and Judy Davis on the wall, and you. I got. Uh, yeah, I I bought the myth that there was real acting to be done, serious acting, um, and. It was good in that it made me set my sights much higher. But then when I came out, I did get cast in all those, in a lot of comedy. And um, it's sort of, I had to recalibrate myself back to where I started in what I believed was important art. And I think I had this excellent experience um, where I got to take my one-woman show to a festival in Poland. Um, it was called the Festival of Song, where they sort of... A cabaret has um, got a sort of a different connotation in Europe. And they had this festival specific, which was about stories through song. And um, I took my one-woman show there, and it was this really big, silly comedy. And I'd been so used to people sort of, I don't know, like not not denigrating that kind of work, but it just, I don't think people realise how difficult it is to make comedy. Like, it is so hard, and I think it hurts me more than, you know, the cost of uh, dramatic acting to sort of make a very good comedy. And I'd gotten into that mindset that it was just a bit of fluff, that this show was just a little bit of something on the side that I was doing while waiting for more important things. But this festival this performance I did at this festival I've just never had anything like it they'd packed people into this 500 seat theater and people were sitting on the floor it was all a lot of them couldn't speak English so it was had surtitles so that they were often laughing before I'd even said the joke because they were reading along um but they every time there was a joke they just screamed and pounded the floor and at the end I had to go into the foyer and or every single person stayed to say hello and like cuddle me and I kept going and they were like um people were translating for them and someone was going uh you know that was so important to me they weren't saying oh that was so funny you know you're just so funny they were going that was important to me and I kept kind of shaking it off going oh thanks you know it's just a little silly comedy and the um producer the artistic director of the festival grabbed me and shook me and it was like, what are you doing? What are you doing? This, to make people laugh, is the most important thing you could do in life, was what he said. And it just stopped me in my tracks. I realised I'd completely kind of gone backwards on what I believe to be important as art. And I don't... I think in Australia we have this slight um, shyness away from entertainment with a capital E as being not important and that sort of level of joy that you can offer someone not being essential. Um, and perhaps artists at the beginning of the pandemic did feel that really rear its head when 
the arts were sort of left out of the um, support packages for a long time Mm. of going, do you not, we, we've lived our lives thinking this was extremely important and to suddenly realise at a greater scale, perhaps our fellow countrymen didn't pay it any mind was a a surprise, but it confirmed to me that I was like, yeah, we, we have a slight, I don't think it's a cultural cringe because we're very good at comedy, but um, it's like we've not been from a young age drenched in the idea that our art reflects us back to us and makes us understand us, be it serious or comedy, and we need art to to uh, be collating this time for us. Yeah. And- and maybe that uh, that reflects you know what it was like to stand in uh, communist breadlines. You know, you really co- comedy wasn't a, a an optional yeah. extra. Comedy was what you needed in order to get yourself through through the day. Now, yeah. In in Sydney, a lot of comedy seems intertwined with the the improv scene, um, theatre, sports, and the and the like. Uh, to what extent, when I was in was involved as a very amateur actor in uh, Belvoir Street uh, Theatre Sports uh, back in the 1990s, uh, did that influence your style of comedy? Was uh, were you involved in improv quite a bit? Yeah, I wasn't. I've never been involved in um, the Sydney improv scene, though I've been asked, and I have come up with every excuse under the sun not to be involved. <laughs> it just theatre sports terrifies me, um, and that's me just not bearing the idea of having to fail um, because that's inevitably you have to have that confidence to fail when you're getting up for improv, as you may remember. Absolutely. It's good good training for politics. Yes. Oh, God, yeah. They're brilliant improvisers, the good ones. They're extraordinary. Yeah. Um, But all of my work has – all of the work that I've written um, has featured – improv, lots of audience interaction, which is just sort of a fantastic way to um, keep the audience, like drop that fourth wall and keep the audience on edge with you. Um, So, yeah, lots of improv in my work, but um, it's very – I get to control the situation, which, you know, feature of my life, I'm quite a control freak, so that works for me. (laughs) Have you done much stand-up? I do cabaret that feels like stand-up. but I've never had the confidence to completely say I'm going to do stand-up because I think giving the audience a genre changes their expectation. And this may seem like cheating, but I prefer to say I'm a singer and I'm going to do a cabaret and then unexpectedly be hilariously funny than saying I'm going to do some stand-up and have people cross their arms and go, okay, well, make me laugh. I feel like it's totally cheating, but it's kind of an expectation that's changed that I think makes just sort of that pact with the audience to you so much easier. Um, And I'm very happy to keep cheating like that. Well, you can't go five minutes in a stand-up show without making people laugh. Whereas, uh, if you've got a some a cabaret or theatre, then you can have those periods in which you're you're telling a story. Mm, yeah, that's true. Yeah. So uh, let's uh, let's go to your uh, your wonderful songs for the fallen uh, about uh, Marie Duplessis, uh, the uh, woman who was a courtesan, party girl, legend. Died of tuberculosis at age 23 and inspired La Traviata and Moulin Rouge. What led you into writing, and, and in particular to writing about Marie? Um, I thought before I, I went, before I sort of got into acting, I did think I was going to be a writer, um, and sort of got. So I felt like I got sidetracked by acting, which sounds glib, but it was sort of accidentally came my way like all my friends were auditioning for drama school so I thought oh yeah I'll do that that sounds good um and it took me sort of about uh five years out of drama school to really where I was feeling kind of dissatisfied um purely as an actor and I had been talking about this idea for Songs for the Fallen um which was I'd heard the story of this woman from Kevin Jackson, uh, one of my brilliant teachers from NIDA, he told this story that there was a woman who, she was a courtesan, and she wore, uh, apparently, you know, there's a lot of sort of stories about her, many I think she made up herself, where she wore a white camellia on her 
chest for 25 days of the month and then a red <laughs> camellia for when she was unavailable for five days of the month when she was not up for business. And I was really stunned by that quite a grotesque image and idea. Um, and it really stuck with me that that image and <laughs> what actually happened was why I did start writing it was I was booked to do an officer and a gentleman which was a multi-million dollar ill-fated musical I was booked on it for a year but we got notice after three weeks um, and the job ended up going for six weeks and I had a whole year um, free so I started writing that's really how it began um, and ended up doing it at the Old Fitz, which is this fantastic small space in Sydney at the end of that year. And I then went on to do it for the next five years, which was just pr probably the most joyous and difficult part of my career I've had. Did you always have in mind that you would play Marie as oh, you were yeah. writing? I'm such an egotist. I have to be the lead. In <laughs> so you were Lin-Manuel Miranda through and through. No, no question as to <laughs> yeah. who was going to open and starring on the, uh, on the opening I night. get all the best lines. I get all the jokes. <laughs> uh, and how did you go about writing? Do you, uh, does, do you start with the music? Do you start with the, uh, the, the lyrics? What, uh, how does it all come together? With that show... Um, I was, it was very concept-based. I had this idea that I, I really wanted it to feel like a vaudeville in some way. And I ended up finding all these um, kind of vaudeville set pieces, like images of, um, the, I found a picture of a dog riding a tricycle. And that became a scene of a, a man sort of riding a tricycle around the bed. And, and that was actually one of the darker scenes of the show. Um, and I with that show built it with sort of set pieces if that makes sense um she there was a scene where i read a story where she had at one stage she had um seven lovers as a courtesan who all absolutely adored her but she was getting so expensive individually they couldn't afford her so these seven guys got together and decided to pool their money to afford her together um, and to sort of commemorate this sort of transaction they bought a chest of drawers with seven drawers so they each had a drawer <laughs> and that this chest of drawers became a set piece for a whole or orgy with seven people essentially getting their clothes out of sort of each drawer yeah it was very image-based that one which was a super fun way to do it and really gave way for like a batty design concept which was great how do you write differently having been an actor how, how do and, and how does your stuff look different on stage to uh, to writers who haven't themselves been actors i think i'm really good at writing to people's strengths um i think i i'm quite adept at uh hearing the tone of how an actor works and how the best way to that they would deliver a joke. I think because I've been an actor for so long and worked with so many people, um, I don't want to pull them to my text. I want to write for their mouth. And, you know, there's a, a billion ways to that you can write, but I, I find that to be uh, the best way to make my ideas sing is if the actor sounds like they were born saying these words. And I think that's um, what has made Songs of the Fallen so successful was I had two other actors in mind who I went to drama school with and wanted to write them roles as sort of um, satisfying and as audacious as mine because I adore these actors and I wrote like a fan for them. So I think that's where my skill sort of lays as a writer is my ability to make an actor sound really damn good. <laughs> and Which for uh, another writer who's writing a sort of generic script presumably then means that they need to be a little bit more flexible on uh, how the lines are delivered in, in in rehearsal I suppose yeah it's, it's such a um a sort of open game that can go any way I think um uh, I've definitely encountered writers who I find their work to quite uh, have sort of not a lack of flow but it's not a natural flow to me and you can either fight it and 
request for it to be changed. That's one way to do it. But I find it's a kind of greater challenge to try and make it work. Um, so I'm quite happy to work not in the way I write. But, um, you know, with four weeks rehearsal, you can sort of, you should be able to make anything work. So it's sort of, um, yeah, you can, it's all a very different process. And writers have all have different expectations of what they want from an actor. But I really love to just get flow going and if a joke's not working, make make the actor change it around, make it work, and then I'll write it down and pretend I wrote it. Um, I've got no problem with that. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's sort of, um, you know, whatever makes the art work um, is, is fine by me. Let's talk about uh, Prima Facie now, the uh, play that you starred in last year with the Griffin Theatre Company uh, about a, uh, on the theme of, of sexual assault. Uh, you, it, it's not a it's not a theme that we write entire plays about very often, is it? No, that was what struck me when I first read the play. That up until that point, I'd only ever seen a play where uh, sex assault was a plot point. You know, a, a catalyst mm. of to change behaviour, or it was never about it as a whole which I hadn't even noticed and struck me as quite extraordinary because the reality is if this has happened to you or someone you know people's lives can be changed irrevocably um, it is something that needs to be spoken about and dissected in art at length and not just used. I don't think, well, I hope in this day and age, I don't think anyone would dare to use it as a plot point anymore. But that's only been a change very recently, I think. Um, yeah, it. I was shocked when I, when I realised I hadn't seen a play solely about sexual assault. Susie Miller was a lawyer before she uh, became a playwright. How did that uh, shape the the script and, and your ability to, to get into this uh, this character of the brash barrister Tessa Rensler. It was sort it was such an incredible script because of her her time as a lawyer. Um, it was so dense. I think that's what's so great about it. It's so particular. Like the world of the lawyer is so particular. And in this show, um, for those who didn't see it it's not giving anything away that she goes into the system as a a victim herself and has to <laughs> go through the system that she has always believed in and to see its flaws and to see actually what it does do to the victim and Susie wrote that with such tenacity because she'd had to do it she'd had to witness it she'd had to she'd spent years of her life taking statements from sex assault victims largely women and children um and geez, one of the most extraordinary nights i had performing that was we did it to i had a night that was just female lawyers had come in mm. only female lawyers um in the room and 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 women working within the judicial system and we had a big sort of forum afterwards which was um someone asked if any of them would let their daughter or their friend or a family member um, charge their their perpetrator and let them go into the system and all of them said no. Like these are, law these are barristers, lawyers, QCs saying they wouldn't encourage their own daughter perhaps to go into the system and go, go into court. It's They know it's so brutal and the chances of getting a conviction are so extraordinarily low that it wouldn't be worth being re-traumatised. One woman did joke that she'd get one of her other clients to go kneecap the guy. I was like, great, <laughs> that makes sense. Um, so, yeah, Susie's knowledge of how broken that's the system is for women was, was really tight um, and that's really the only way that play sang. It's that's incredibly depressing indictment of our uh, our judicial system, but but also 
happening at the same time as the Me Too movement, uh, which was roiling not only uh, uh, your occupation in America but also here in Australia. Um, how do you think Me Too has reshaped the way in which theatre is produced? It's, um, it's a complex conversation, that one. Our first day of rehearsals was the day when uh, the, um, the trial finished with E.J. Norville and Geoffrey Rush. And so it was a very looming thing over us. And Susie um, borrowed some of the language from the judge's findings and put it into the play, which was a really uh, incredible and just an ability to really sink to the, the prescient um, language of the moment. Because I think there was, some, I think it was a line in there where it implied that she was exaggerating, and it was the hysterical woman trope, and kind of leaning into the idea that the actress is the is making up stories um, and performing. Um, which was really, and I think what is also hard in Australia is our defamation laws are so strong. And I think a lot of people don't realise that. They go, why aren't we moving like America got to move? And it, be, it is because of our defamation laws. And that's what happened with you know, EJ and Jeffrey. It became not about EJ telling the world about what Jeffrey did. It became that Jeffrey had been defamed by a newspaper and that was all what all the folks was about not about what that theater company had happened under their roof it became about Jeffrey's reputation and no matter what in this country any accusation is going to come back to a defamation case which is so demeaning for a woman to sit through um and it's happened again with Craig McLaughlin it's been yeah it's a what's been a shame is that the defamation laws has prevented there being much change in the Australian arts industry. On saying that, though, the companies have all moved to make small but essential changes. Um, they've given, they've made it very clear that people's claims pe will be supported, and nothing. I mean, people aren't going to dare let that happen again. So, it's been. Like, it's felt like two steps forward, one step back. But, you know, that one step that's happened is going to make a big difference to the life of many, many actors in this country and male actors as well. Um, you know, I think they get forgotten. There's a sort of different world in sort of male-on-male -male, um, antagonisation in the industry. It's sort of not spoken about, but it's there and it's just as vulnerable as a, a young actress coming into the industry, a young male actor feels just as vulnerable to people who have more status and more power than them. So I think the younger actors under me do feel a lot more empowered than I would have stepping out into the industry. I hope they do. What's the right role for uh, blokes in your industry and, and in others? I mean, apart from the obvious, don't be evil. <laughs> Uh, um, a role as in how they sh how yeah, how how to how to how to create an environment in which uh, w women, uh, particularly young women coming into in the industry, feel safe and respected. Gosh, I think it's um, the blurry line of of attraction and eroticism that. Can, that inevitably happens when when you're making art. So much art is about sex. So much art is about craving and lust. Um, every great story is ultimately about love. So these are themes that we're sort of nine to five bandying about a room. Lines, but lines shouldn't feel crossed. And I think there is a misconception and it came up again and again and again say with the with the Craig McLaughlin and Rocky Horror thing like that was the role he's supposed to seduce but a role is a role and it's uh, it's it's so easy not to make an actor feel in danger in the space with you and it's all about intention 
and it's all about respect and it's all about conversations um, before and after scenes. It doesn't pop the magic bubble that is art. I think scenes flourish when the boundaries are set as opposed to an, an, a young, an actor feeling pushed and pushed and pushed into an unsafe space. I call, I just think it's absolute crap if people think <laughs> things, lines need to be blurred to make good art. I think that's a very retrograde, old-fashioned way of thinking about um, acting. Yes. I don't buy it, don't need it. I'm better when you're not making me terrified. <laughs> Sounds pretty intuitive. Uh, tell, tell me about some of your uh, your heroes in uh, in in the the world of art, and, and I'm particularly interested in the world of world of comedy. Uh, who do you look to as uh, as role models? Oh, well, um, I'm a huge Dylan Moran fan. Black Books, his stand up is like my favourite stand up. He's so dark and cynical and sardonic and that just speaks to my dark little heart um but of late I'm just absolutely gobsmacked by Phoebe Waller-Bridge um of her Fleabag series um she's just so delicious and bold and extraordinary and seductive in her writing I cannot get enough of her the second series of Fleabag I watched once then watched again straight away it was I'd never kind of really felt romance in any sort of work of art, a book or a film, but her romance that she wrote with the hot priest in season two of Flip, I just think is the greatest romance ever written. Absolutely. And what about uh, the the classics? Do you uh, do you reach back to uh, to, to Python or to uh, uh, some of those other uh, sort of great uh, great comedians of the era? I recently wondered if Blackadder stood up from watching it when I was younger and I went back and ha- newly obsessed with Rowan Atkinson. He's amazing and that show is still very, very good. What I love about what is just amazing about him is that he's got a, a low-status clown and a high-status clown and there's very few... Actors, like, actors have their clown, you know, and it's either the bumbling fool or the the sort of high status toff who right. just. And so you mean he's above he's above Baldrick, but uh, but then has to uh, uh, cozy up to the royals. Well, in Blackadder, he's high status, but then in Mister Bean, he's got his okay. his low status, and you got that is. I actually don't know any other actor who has pulled that off in the way that he has. Um, he's just great, and then. My other my other big one is um, Steve Coogan's Alan Partridge. I just love um, those I, <laughs> those clown characters like Alan Partridge who just do not know that they're such a piece of shit. <laughs> they do <laughs> not know that they have no dignity, and their daily life is this grappling, grasping, striving for status. And they have no dignity. I just can't get enough of it. Dilapidated glamour. I love it. Glamour and destruction. I'm in. <laughs> when I go back and watch uh, Blackadder, it, there's there's a little bit too much uh, punching down for my tastes. Uh, oh yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. There's there's something about the interaction that sort of it feels like it's um, uh, occasionally the jo- the jokes on uh, on Baldrick uh, rather than uh, rather than being mm. on uh, on the character played by by Rowan Atkinson. Uh, and yes. you've um, uh, I remember you once saying that you took inspiration from uh, Tim Curry in uh, in Rocky Horror. <gasps> oh yeah, like I think. <laughs> I think most people saw Rocky Horror when they were too young and were so bamboozled by what was going on and the feelings they were getting in their loins. Well, it's um, 1975, they, right? I mean, uh, homosexuality is illegal at the time at which this uh, this extraordinary bisexual musical is uh, is hitting the, yes. the screens. And it's like every parent out there for some reason, like, let it be sort of like this kids' musical that we were all allowed to watch at any (laughs) age. It makes no sense. And we grew up, um, I came from, uh, my family were Pentecostal Christians. We weren't allowed to watch Doctor Who, The Simpsons, Golden Girls. All those things were evil and tatty. But for some reason, Rocky Horror made it through (laughs) and just stopped me in my tracks. 
I just felt the weirdest feelings and got a little hot around my ears going, what is happening? He's a beautiful man. Yeah. He did a lovely interview, I remember, where he said they uh, they played for a long time with the accent that uh, that uh, Dr. Frankenfurter oh, was going to be. Oh, I just heard this. And he was going to be German, and then he was going to be American, and then he settles on what he calls this Belgravia accent, inspired by a woman he once met on the bus. Uh, and yeah. so that's that's the accent that he sings Sweet Transvestite to us. Oh, it's so good. It's such a good performance. He's just being disgraceful, getting away with anything. God, it's great. How are you uh, using your time during the uh, the, the pandemic? Uh, you're uh, you're obviously uh, not starring on on the stage. Uh, are you uh, riding up a storm? I'm riding my little titties off, um, mixed with a um, a healthy dose of deep self-loathing. That I'll sit at my computer at eight a.m. and definitely nothing but a sentence is out by one p.m. I don't know what I do in those mysterious five hours. A lot of online shopping. It's just oh, right now. I could stab myself in the face but yes I am writing or attempting to write um, a couple of projects working on some musicals and some plays um, too many things but I'm having a good time doing it what's inspiring your art at the moment definitely oh, it sounds so sort of grim and obvious but th- this pandemic has been um, really I've uh, how do I describe it? I've gone through mixes of despair and euphoria in this time and been uh, deeply fascinated by what it's done to us as a community, how people are reacting. It's just something, you know, we're so lucky in Australia. We get untouched by so much tragedy. And even when terrible, difficult things happen in this country, they kind of I'm in the city and the cities get so protected from the bushfires. Everything's still quite far away. So this is kind of, you know, my first real um, life-altering um, catastrophe that's ever happened to me and all the, all the sort of my community around me. And I'm re- really, I have not been stopped. I've been reading a lot about the type of art that was made during World War II and afterwards and that's been really fascinating about what is it what I'm curious yeah what I'm inspired by is I'm super curious about what do we need right now in art what do I think especially in theatre I think about how now the very act of someone coming to the theatre is a gift to me in itself they're in danger they've uh, there's a risk of them being in that space. You know, we can make, you know, the theatres will make it as safe as they can, but there's still, you know, it's not, there's a, a percentage of risk. And usually with theatre, the lights go down, there's sort of a palate cleanse and we just get to be in the show. But that's not going to happen. It's taken maybe someone a, a week or two or three of planning to be in that space. So what is it? What is, if they've come to me and given me such a gift... What is the gift that I need to give back? And is it a a time of uplifting, uproarious silliness? Is that the gift they need? Or is it uh, to to interrogate this madness that's just happened, to interrogate how we've just behaved, and of which I think a lot of us are ashamed about, you know, even back to the, the stockpiling of groceries and people breaking quarantine, there's this sort of shame that's kind of been a patterner over us this year. Do we wanna do we wanna talk about that when they get to the theatre? So I'm really inspired by what the conversation needs to be. Maybe you could ask all of your audience members to uh, bring along one of their mini spare toilet rolls and throw them like confetti <laughs> at the end to sort of purge their souls. Yes, uh, yes, and then I'd pack it up neatly for the next pandemic, for the third wave. <laughs> but it is interesting. I remember my uh, grandfather telling me after World War World War Two, everyone just wanted to go out to parties. It was just uh, party, party, party. Mm. So I guess that is yeah. that that open question as to whether once the vaccine comes along, we'll really want to be consuming art that is about the pandemic or whether uh, whether that will be uh, a set of memories people want to put off to one side. Yeah, throw it away. I, I read um, 
There's two bits of art I've been thinking about. In the London Blitz was Noel Coward's Blythe Spirit, which mm. is total escapism. Um, and I saw uh, in a review someone wrote, you know, blithely walking towards death like it means nothing. And then on the other side, over the um, waters in France, was Paul Sartre's No Exit, which is that play where the famous line, hell is other people, and it's three people sitting in purgatory discovering that hell is the company of other people. And they couldn't be more opposite, Like, but yet they both dwell on death, um, either lightly or kind of with a deep marination. And I think, yeah, that's it, it's interesting will we want to forget this or will we want to explore it? I love No Exit and I'd never realised that uh, it came out of that experience of, uh, of sitting in, inside, yeah. inside French houses uh, waiting for the Germans to uh, to get out of town. Yeah, yeah, that really stunned me and I thought, wow, that, they're two really interesting pieces to contemplate on our journey forward as artists um, of what's the communion of the theatre that we're going to want to experience. Sheridan, let me throw you a few final questions to wrap up. Uh, what advice would you give to your teenage self? I'd want to tell myself that you're going to fail every day and it's okay, don't freak out. <laughs> it took me a long time to learn that and be calm about failure, yeah. What taught you that lesson? Oh, well, you do, you just... You just failed. You didn't, you didn't have a big sort of worthwhile <laughs> failure that uh, that seared the, the the lesson into you. I think it's actually <laughs> like um, after ten years of just being knocked and knocked and knocked and knocked, and this is coming from someone who's had a really great career. You know, I've gotten to work a lot, but it's sort of like you know, for every ten auditions you do, you only get one if you're lucky. That's nine failures. <laughs> That's nine times walking out of a casting room trying not to cry. Um, and I think it took me... And also then as a writer, you know, well, Songs for the Fallen, you know, and that show on paper looks fantastic, won awards, but you do eight shows a week. Maybe, like, two of them are excellent, four of them are okay, and the rest you might be terrible where no one laughed and you get aggressive back at the audience it's sort of you just can't have a, a perfect run you know of perfect shows you will fail all the way all the time and I think it took me about 10 years to understand that that's art and that is the fuel. Oh, I think that's actually that's what it is. I realise that the failure is my fuel because it makes me so hungry and so upset that I have to rectify it. And I wish I could tell my teenage self to use it and not let it collapse me. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? Oh, in God. <laughs> the big one. Going for a big one. When um, did you move away from your Pentecostal roots? Yeah, well, yeah, we were tambourine bashing um, Christians. Used to, you know, had my liturgical ribbon running around the church. <laughs> um, it was actually when I got to NIDA, which um, got to Sydney, the city of sin. Uh, I had this incredible um, history of theatre teacher who used to be a monk and he lined up the Bible with the Greek texts, um, all the old Greek, you know, mythical stories of the gods and taught them exactly the same. And that just stunned me. It hadn't occurred to me that they were also mythical texts, that they were also silly gods running around the mountains with lightning bolts. And it just switched off in one day, completely popped the bubble. Yeah. I also did, when I, come to, when I came to Sydney, went to one... Um, Hillsong event and that also broke me a little bit. <laughs> Your experience sounds a little bit that, like that uh, Christopher Hitchens line that uh, I think he's speaking to a minister and he said you, you, you and I don't believe in Allah, we don't believe in Yahweh, we don't believe in Zeus and I simply add one more God to that list. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's what happened and it, it just, I, I felt so stupid for not having noticed it. 
honestly, I, I felt a bit like b betrayed. I was like, oh God, I've been dumb. But I say that I, you know, sort of, I do, I did feel that, but I do whole, I don't kind of denigrate religion. I think it's so important. Um, and my mother came to religion in her 20s after a really difficult life and it that finding something to put her hope in completely changed her life and I think religion has that place and needs to exist for such reasons um, but then I I lived a life where I didn't need to believe in something outside myself you know and I can feel confident that it's not fire and brimstone so I yeah I don't spit at it <laughs> but um yeah, I can't do it anymore, and I get kind of cross when I think of the damage the Catholic Church has done, but, geez, that's a whole other podcast. But, uh, yeah, yeah, bye, God, bye. <laughs> we, uh, we have a lot of evidence, too, that uh, people who attend church are, uh, are much more altruistic and giving in, in many other ways, uh, that uh, church-going church makes, you, makes you a nicer person in, in some sense. Um, and there's a higher survival rate with... Uh, um, with difficult illnesses in religious people because of the hope, I guess. Well, I hope maybe it's just because it's God. God, I'm going to have to think about that. When are you most happy? When I'm sewing. I'm a... Sewing? We haven't spoken yes, about sewing at all. I Tell know. me more about this. I, uh, about two years ago, realised I had no hobbies, that I wasn't a real human being living in the world. And a lot of actors are like that. We're just... We like we not real people, even though we act like real people. We've got <laughs> no real life. Um, and I was doing a play written by the extraordinary Alana Valentine, and she sews all of her clothing, everything she wears, she's sewn herself. And she was in the room one day. She came in in this amazing piece, and I went. I used to sew when I was a teenager, and I liked it. So I started again, and now I'm obsessed with it. Do it not like it's my happy place. Put in a podcast, and 14 hours later, got myself a lovely frock. It's great. It's um because it's solving puzzles. That's what sewing is, and I didn't realise that. It's quite addictive. Do you have any guilty pleasures? Um, <laughs> it would be uh, looking for vintage patterns online. I would do it for five hours straight. It's it's disgusting. It's too, it's like trawling the classifieds for vintage patterns it's that's my guilty pleasure i have too many <laughs> i've got hundreds <laughs> well it certainly seems a, a far cry from uh, marie de Plessis's uh, guilty yeah, pleasures so if that is that's so the worst tame. advice you can come up with <laughs> i mean i could talk about the disgraceful amount of alcohol i drink and all sorts of things but we'll go with sewing as my <laughs> as my guilty pleasure <laughs> And finally, Sheridan, which person or which experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? I would, I would go with my amazing mum on that one. Um, she, as I said before, she had a really tricky childhood. Um, her mother, who was an incredible woman but was um, diagnosed with schizophrenia when she was very young and my mum had to... Um, back then schizophrenia didn't exist it was just considered a nervous breakdown and she was kind of put on Valium um, and and this is in sort of Gippsland in the country in the 50s there was just sort of no mental health kind of facilities down there um, and my mum just remembers her mum going to bed for years and she from 10 sort of became the like the head of the household in terms of you know her education went out the door she just had to clean cook get the get the place going and despite these sort of things and living sort of a very um poor life with my dad and smacking out seven children I don't know what she was thinking she just was is an endless source of love and joy and made me believe I could be anything and do anything and that's I just think I live my life daily um, trying to be as loving as she was and I think that it to me is an ethical good life to try and live with 
um, love and kindness. It's all I could ask from anyone else and all I can ask of myself. It's a pretty impressive role model. Oh, she's Sheridan. a good one. <laughs> Sheridan Harbridge, uh, thespian extraordinaire. Thanks so much for taking the time to share your wisdom on the Good Life podcast. Oh, what a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation. If you enjoyed this discussion, I reckon you'll love past interviews with Patty Stiles, Carl Vine and David Pereira. We appreciate getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen to this show. It really helps others find the podcast. Next week, we'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.